You're listening to Chopping It Up with Jimmy C, where we celebrate life after wrongful conviction. We are covering everything from sports and resiliency to mental health and integrity. So pull up a chair and get comfortable because you are in for a treat. We are Chopping It Up with Jimmy C, and here I am. Let's get it. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Chopping It Up with Jimmy C. I am your host, Jimmy C. Gardner. For those who don't know me, I spent 27 years in prison for a crime that I did not commit. And now I'm out and I'm free. (laughs) On today's podcast, we have with you Mr. Jeffrey Deskovic. But first, I want to remind you guys to support my channel. Please like and share our page. Make sure to sign up to get our alerts so you never miss out on our live show. Okay, let me introduce to you Mr. Jeffrey Deskovich. You know, Jeffrey's an exoneree from the state of New York. And uh, Jeffrey and I met, man, a few years ago. And, it, and that was an opportunity for us to, to just be able to, to bond and be able to come together. And uh, I just I, I thank you, Jeffrey, man, for, for just being a stand-up guy, man, and, and just everything you've been through and, and all of your triumphs, man, and, and how you're giving back and doing so much, man, for, for society and, and individuals that are wrongfully convicted out there, man. Man, come on in and let the people know a little bit of something about you, man, and talk a little something. Go ahead, Jeff. Sure. So as you mentioned, uh, so I'm, a, I'm an advocate. You know, I started the nonprofit organization, the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, um, which has freed seven wrongfully convicted people. So it was important to me to reach back to the yes. brothers and sisters I metaphorically left behind. We helped change three laws in New York. I'm yeah. an advisory board member of the coalition group, It Could Happen to You, which the foundation is part of. We helped pass another three laws. Really quickly, we have we just recently opened chapters in Pennsylvania, in California. So we're going to continue our model there of building a coalition and working for reform. I recently graduated law school about a year ago. I just passed the bar exam. Awesome. So doing full-time advocacy work. Yeah, just my life is uh, all about giving back. And of course, my motivation is that, as you mentioned, I did 16 years in prison in New York uh, from age 17 to 32 for a murder and rape, which I did not commit. Uh, DNA exonerated me while identifying the actual perpetrator. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, man. I want to let individuals out there know we have a quote coming across the screen saying wrongful conviction. It can happen to you. It can happen to anyone. And that's from Jeffrey. And and, and I want to let everybody know. And Jeffrey can, can, can also let everybody know this can happen to anyone. You're, you're witnessing two exonerees right now having the opportunity to speak and having a platform to speak on and be able to share a horrific event that occurred in our lives. And neither of us allowed that event to just turn us sour or to put hatred in us. We're, 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 we're home, we're, we're, we're doing good and we're living life and we're, just, we're doing everything to, to give back and help those that we know that are still behind and may need to be lifted up and need a little help and assistance in getting their cases heard and being, being able to be interviewed and so on. So Jeffrey, tell me, tell me a little something, man. Tell me, um, you spent how many years in prison? 16. Man. And you were in the state of New York? Yes. Man, just congratulations on going through that and, and, and coming home. How long have you been home now? 14 years. 14 years. And in those 14 years, as you all can, uh, can hear, Jeffrey has, Jeff has received his uh, law degree and he's continued to move on. He started his foundation Man, just so much props to you, bro. If, if for those individuals out there that are wanting to do similar things to you that that uh, that you are doing right now, as far as with your with your organization coming home and and being able to not be just in a in a negative situation and being in a position to do for self and others, what would you recommend to those individuals? How can they get started in, in an organization uh, of such like yours, and how can they keep a, a mindset of positivity? In, as far as moving forward after wrongful conviction? Sure. I mean, just real, realize that this is an opportunity for you to turn everything around. You know, um, the wrongful conviction and years of imprisonment works against us initially. Yeah. So why not turn that around and turn that into turn that into uh, an asset? You know, you definitely have a chance to have your voice heard. You have a, uh, have a platform. You know, people will listen to you if, if you speak. So, you know, you can rise above that and be that person that you wished existed while you were wrongfully imprisoned. Right. But the main thing is to have a plan, though. That's that's the whole thing. You know, the idea is don't go crawl under a rock. 
don't never be heard from again. You know, I would encourage people I don't, not, not to be content to just go back and just be just a regular member of society. I mean, be, doing advocacy, I find to be very healing, very meaningful. It, it makes a difference. And so you can, you know, use that initial five minutes of fame and parlay that into a, a whole lifetime, you know, worth of advocacy work. And I, I find it very healing and meaningful. Awesome, man. Thank you for sharing that. And, and uh, I, I was saying earlier, you and I met, we met in Atlanta. I'm not sure if you remember that. We met in Atlanta. I do. Innocence Network Conference, man. And um, so have, since you've been home, how many conferences have you been to, Innocence Network Conference? I've been to 11. I've, awesome. I've been to 11 out of the 14, yes. Awesome. To me, my first event, my first uh, national network event was in Memphis, Tennessee. And I'm sure you were at that one also. Yes. And, and we had an opportunity to walk to the Lorraine uh, Motel where Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated and uh, it was so much unity and just so many individuals there that had been through similar experiences that, that we have. Can you tell me, just, just share with the audience a little bit, what type of feeling overcomes you when you're in the rooms and when you're around individuals that have gone through such, such pain and agony and, and so such a, a horrible incident in life by being falsely incarcerated for, for numbers and scores of years. How does that, how does that, make you feel when you're around these individuals today in these, in these events? I feel, I feel moved. I feel empathetic because I've been there and done that. I feel okay. for their pain. At the same time, I also, I feel a kinship, a bond, a camaraderie, a level of trust that normally in most walks of life you would not feel to a stranger, but I don't consider them to be strangers because we have the commonality of being having been wrongfully imprisoned. And frankly, it's nice to be around people that you know that in general, everybody in the room is safe. Man, I tell you, my experience, man, it was just so moving being able to go up on the stage. And when you're on that stage and you're around almost a hundred people or more that have been through horrendous orde an ordeal such as, your such as yourself, such as what we went through and and just to see the, the men and women share the same stage together. We're, and we're the very blessed and fortunate ones that have received the opportunity to come home, you know, through DNA and through help of attorneys and, and organizations, innocence projects. But it's so many that, that haven't had that opportunity. And, and we're, I'm just thankful for the opportunity. I know, Jeffrey, you're thankful also. I'm very thankful. I am the fortunate. There's many, many people inside, you know, that don't have legal representation. And, and there's people there that, uh, sometimes the knot is tied so tight there there isn't any undoing it, you know. So I do feel fortunate, and I, it's also extra motivation for me to continue to do advocacy work. What just I feel inspired by the people, the new people that have come home. That's always the highlight of the Innocence Conference Network is you know all the new exonerees that came home. Yeah. I, I did like a huge screen, and you oh, see yeah. like a five to ten Ooh. second clip the moment they were released, and the next thing oh. you know, someone's calling their name, and the real person appears. Uh, on, no. on, on the screen, it, it, Jimmy, it's so dramatic. My hair is standing up right now, you know. And then when, you know, eventually our name gets called as, oh, yeah. as well. They go through the old timers that have already been on yeah. after the yeah. new people. And, you know, I love being on, on, on the stage there and, you know, yeah. just being an inspiration for the audience members. I, I love doing I love being involved. You know, I, I'm, I'm a part of a fraternity, a Greek fraternity, Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated. And I always let individuals know that the fraternity of, 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 of exonerees, and, I, and we, we all have rings that are Kirk Bluster, yes. the first exoneree from the state of Maryland. He makes these rings for everyone. And I don't know if everyone can see it, but this is a ring that, that all exonerees are, are awarded by Mr. Kirk Bluzzworth. I'm sure you have yours, Jeff. You're probably not wearing it today, but but when I tell you, and this this is a phenomenal fraternity, and I'm just so so proud and, and and happy to be a part of it. Yes. Yeah. Those. Yeah. The ring. The rings. Uh. The rings are. Uh, rings are sentimental for sure. Oh yeah. You know, I actually mine mine fell off my hand when I lost some weight and it got lost in the snow. But you know, Kirk is actually in the middle of uh, working on another one. He's going to send me another one. Oh yeah. Yeah. You get another. So tell me, um, Jeff, what prompted you when you came home? What prompted you to want to go back and, and get your law degree and eventually fight for the men and women that are still falsely incarcerated? 
Sure. So, I mean, I had start after I took me about five years to get compensated. And once I did, I started the Jeff Des- Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice. And as I mentioned, we were able to get seven people home. But at some point, sitting in the front row of the courtroom and not being able to sit at the desk, the defense table and not being able to address the judge that, you know, it became not enough. So hence my foray into law school you know, graduate law school and uh, you know, yeah. pass the bar and finishing up the last couple steps to get that law license. So I felt like I'd be able to represent some people that way. Their additional credential would help me in my policy initiatives and give additional level of credibility. Jimmy, sometimes I uh, make a sports analogy. Okay. I say, look, I got tired of being the head coach of the football team. That's right. So that's the rationale. Man, man. Thank you for sharing that. You know, you, you want to be out there on that field. I mean, it's all good, yes. but you want to you want to be right there in the middle of it. And, yes. and there's, been a, there's been a number of uh, exonerees since they came home yes. that are, that have became attorneys, and they they went and they've taken the LSAC, and next thing you know, they they went and and did their years of uh, law school and and uh, and, and took them taking the bar, and now they're attorneys in their respective states. Uh, are there any exonerees that you know of that uh, went through the process to become lawyers after exoneration? If you can name them. I can name them and I, uh, I'll share with you. I consulted with a number of them before going to law school. And then while in law school, I consulted awesome. with them. For The forerunner, of course, was uh, Chris Ochoa. But then other attorneys, uh, Jared Adams, who, who moved to New York from uh, from Illinois. Yes. Uh, Marty Tancliffe of New York. Keon Katibi of New York. Isaac Wright Jr. of New Jersey. I haven't, I haven't met him yet, but I know I'm familiar with his work. Uh, Donald Glassman is another is, an, is another person, uh, Michael Robinson as well, is is another one. So, yeah. Man, it, 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 I mean, that is phenomenal. For individuals out there, you know, just just hearing these names, these names run, up, run off the uh, off the mouth of Jeffrey Deskovitz, these names of other attorneys that have went on to become lawyers in their respective states and to be able to fight for wrongfully convicted and rightfully convicted, be able to, to, to make sure that clients have, have uh, effective representation. It's phenomenal. And, and this just lets everyone know, regardless of your circumstances, whatever you're involved in, you, you know, continue to, to believe, never give up, and to continue to put yourself in the position of staying resilient and reaching towards your final goal, reaching towards that objective. Never let any, anything take you off your path, off, off of that straight path. Stay on, on the course and continue to fight and, and eventually win the reward. Man, and Jeffrey, man, you're a fine example of that, man. You, you stayed on your course. You've helped so many lives in between, and, and you just, we got, we got to put you in for the humanitarian award. Because I would love. I would love that. I, thing, I, I really would love that because I mean, right. it's nice to be recognized and it's healing. Right. But most importantly, you know, it, it highlights the work and it brings attention to the to the cause of wrongful conviction. Exactly. And I just keep it. You know, my feet fully on the ground, and you know, I'm just a tool in the struggle. And right. I didn't ask for this. I didn't want this to happen to me in order to do this. But that having been said, you know, it did happen to me. And all I can deal with is right now and tomorrow. And this is the best course of action for me. No doubt, man. I mean. Undoubtedly, I believe everything happens for a reason. Yes. And, and you're doing wonderful work and you're, you're continuing to, to, to help men and women come out of, of, of false com- convictions and bad situations going through the legal process. So you continue to do what you do, man. Much props to you. Much Thank respect. You. Yes. I want you to share with our audience just a little something about wrongful convictions. In my case, I had a uh, prosecutorial misconduct. I had an individual that, that testified falsely to the, 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 the forensic and serology DNA evidence. And uh, so many cases have different, not topics, but different things happen. It could be a uh, false identification. It could be, you know, individuals falsified evidence, testified falsely, perjured themselves. It could be a number of things. What is the number one thing from your belief perspective that you think causes wrongful convictions? Well, statistically, uh, misidentification is the, okay. is the leading cause of wrongful conviction. Um, at least in the DNA cases, that's been the cause of wrongful conviction, 75% uh, of, of the DNA proven wrongful convictions. That having been said, the factor that runs through 
almost all the wrongful convictions is prosecutorial misconduct. So yeah. that was actually one of the laws that the uh, coalition group uh, I'm part of, it could happen to you. Uh, that was one of the reforms that we passed in New York. We, we were able to pass the country's first uh, commission on prosecutor conduct, so an independent okay. oversight board for prosecutors. So we were able to pass that, and we passed a chapter amendment to that a year afterwards. Awesome. We're in the process of um, repassing that. The, the DA Association wanted no oversight, so they brought a lawsuit. Judge upheld the commission but found a problem in the appeal process within it, so we're in the process of repassing it to tweak that. But we're also trying to export that commission uh, in Pennsylvania uh, and California. Awesome. Man, keep putting that work in throughout the country. You know, myself, I'm still going through litigation, civil litigation. I'm, I'm in my, it'll be three years of civil litigation for me after the fact of doing 27 years falsely. And I think that's, that's something in our country, individuals that have been wrongfully convicted, they, they have to come home and then have to be, they have to fight to get their, their, their cases expunged. Then they have to fight to get the prosecution to, to dismiss the charges and, and they have to fight for just to be, try to made whole, try to be made whole again. And that's a continual fight. And there's a, a, a lot of negative things that happen throughout that, uh, that process. If it were up to you, how would you try to circumvent the process that is currently ongoing in the judicial process? And that process involves prosecutors having just so much autonomy to, to charge how they want to charge, to bring charges back on against individuals that have been wrongfully convicted after the fact, to come back in and, and just continue to, to to use that that position as a bully pen. How would you respond to that? How what would you say are some some methods or some ways that we as people in this country can try to eliminate that prosecutorial misconduct and the opportunities that prosecutors have to just use that position as a, a bully pen? Yeah, so I think definitely passing uh, the Commission on Prosecutor Conduct uh, in, in every state, as well as federally, to, to deal with cases because uh, wrongful convictions happen in the federal system. So that would be the first step. Another step would be there's a terrible legal doctrine called prosecutorial immunity. So that means no matter how serious the misconduct is, the prosecutor could suborn perjury, could threaten witnesses, could withhold evidence of, uh, of innocence. Nothing happened. You can't sue them. So I would remove remove that immunity. And the third thing is that I would criminalize clear cut intentional prosecutorial misconduct. So when so when someone threatens a witness or withholds evidence of of innocence, then they've been to me, they've they've they've, uh, obstructed justice. They've pulled off a kidnapping, you know, under color of state law. So I'm in favor of criminalization of, again, not errors of judgment, but clear cut and intentional. So I think that those things are important. If I could segue back to your statement before the question, I, I want to agree with you in terms of the difficulties that exonerees face upon release. I believe that separate and apart from financial compensation, exonerees should be assisted by the government on day one of their freedom. Day one. Uh, things like housing, cost of living expenses, mental health, uh, me- mental health services, doctor care, dental, access to public transportation, job training, jo- job placement, classes on technology. So all those things should be provided automatically. There's 15 states that don't have compensation. Uh, mm. Pennsylvania is one of them. So that's one of the states that can happen to you, uh, our Pennsylvania chapter. So we're working on passage exonerate compensation there. They don't have automatic expungement either. So we're, we're really close to passing that bill. So those are two of the things that we're working on on there. So it should be it should be automatic is what I'm what I'm getting at. It took me it took me five years, Jimmy, to get compensated. And while I was doing a lot of advocacy work, speaking, and I was making some money doing that, I was a columnist, but I was still struggling financially. I was never able to obtain gainful employment. As you know, speaking is not a is not is not a consistent form of income. You only get paid when you get booked. Right. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I lack stability of housing. I bounced around from place to place. At one point, I nearly ended up in, in, a, in a homeless shelter to where uh, I didn't get any help for mental health. So it took me, I had to do that six years. I went four times a week. My lawyers were able to find a mental health uh, professional that was willing to work on a lean basis where they took the chance that they were going to get paid. That was the only way they could get paid would be if I you know, won my compensation case. So yeah. many, many, many mental health professionals are not willing to work on that basis. So 
a lot of people, a lot of exonerees are not provided with the uh, mental health assistance that that they need. Man, thank you for sharing that. That is a that is a problem we're we're all we're encountering. When I came home, I didn't have opportunity for health care. I couldn't get employment right away. I I mean it was it was not a good situation. I came to the state of Georgia and things just weren't as affordable, not affordable as as uh, presentable to me. You know, I didn't have I didn't have I didn't know where the resources would come from. So it was a difficult situation, you know, and I'm fortunate to have family there. But there's so many exonerees, you know, they've been gone so long, they don't have family, you know. Right. Yeah, they, they lose touch with their friends. They lose touch with their friends and family. Yeah. Uh, that's one factor. It's hard. It is hard to reconnect. And another thing is that often, uh, to the extent that friends and family are still in the picture, many many of them are of uh, modest means, or you know, they're, they're struggling. I mean, most of the people that have been wrongfully imprisoned, you know, we never had very much money to begin with. Right. And that's one of the reasons why we were wrongfully convicted, because if we did, we would be able to hire top notch lawyers and investigators and other experts and present our cases in, in the right way in the first go around. And, and it quite possibly wouldn't have been wrongfully, wrongfully imprisoned. So that's no all part of it. And the world was much different for me. You know, the culture was different. The technology was different. So cell phones, GPS, Internet, that didn't exist. When right. I was uh, when when I was originally incarcerated, and and cities and towns looked different, people moved away. So I often felt like if I was a uh, fish out of water. Man, man, thank you for sharing that. And you know, I I I went away. It was 1989. I was convicted in 1990, and and you were around 1990 yourself. Right. You know, it was a it was a lot happening, a lot of changes at that time in the world. We didn't have the same. We didn't have the same accesses that we're having today, you know, with the cell phones and all things of that sort, communication. Something is happening today, man. Uh, that that seg- segues me into what's happening today. You know, today, you know, we're, we're seeing a new day. And I'm sure you, you've seen it of, of the instances that have happened in, in the country, dealing with Black Lives Matter and individuals being killed by police officers, police brutality. Even right there in New York, you have you have you have the with Mr. Philando Castile, you have Eric Garner and and many others, you know. But we're seeing a change, I believe, here today, man. We have a a world of people now that are not just saying I'm not racist or I'm not this or I'm against this or or I'm I'm, I'm against this this uh, injustice. They're actually getting out and protesting. What do you think this change? How, what do you think about this change and 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 why it's happening? so much right now i think it's a good i think it's a good thing i mean the mood of the country seems to be for criminal justice reform you know people are taking to the streets and 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 protesting and um you know i i support that i've been at a number of them i've been allowed to speak at some of them what i'm trying to do my argument is always that we have to look at criminal justice reform as a whole okay Uh, yeah the unjustifiable deadly police force thousand percent spots of light should be on that and police brutality. But let's also not forget about wrongful conviction. Let's also not forget about other for other forms of injustice. And by the way, as much as we need police reform, let's not forget about the prosecutors. They often work hand in glove with the police. They're the ones using the evidence that the police gather in violation of our constitutional rights. They're the ones prosecuting victims of police brutality, the cops who try to cover up their crime, they're, char- they're charging that you assaulted. It's the prosecutors that are prosecuting those cases rather than dismissing the charges and going after the cops who right. engage in the brutality. It's the, it's the prosecutors who are using lineups and photo arrays that were, obta- that were uh, the identifications of which were obtained through suggestive right. and unfair procedures. It's the prosecutors that are, that are allowing witnesses to take the stand who are lying. It's the prosecutors who are using coerced false confessions. It's the prosecutors who are using experts who are engaging in forensic misconduct. You know, so we can't forget about them. We need to pass the Commission on Prosecutor Conduct. You know, I'm trying to make sure that wrongful conviction, you know, isn't forgotten about amidst those other two issues that instead it's all looked at as a whole. And the last thing is, you know, I'm, I'm making clear that we need the honest cops the honest prosecutors who are doing things by the book, right way, ter- blow the whistle. You always yeah. the, one of the slogans given yeah. to the public is, "If you see something, say something." Speak so on. I'm calling on the honest ones. If you see something, say something. 
You know, it's not enough for you to not engage in misconduct yourself. But if you see it and you turn the blind eye, if you look away, then you're setting the stage for someone to get away with that. You're allowing that culture to to take root and you're putting one class of people, you know, above above the law. We need to force the dirty ones out of both professions. You know, I, I don't think that every cop is bad, every prosecutor is bad, but I'm also not on the other side either. It's not a few bad apples. I no. wish it was. If it was, why is there more than 2,600 wrongful conviction uh, exonerations listed in the National Registry of Exoneration if it's just a few bad apples? Why are there so many victims of police brutality? Why yeah. are so many people killed uh, unjustified? It's not a few. It's a lot more than that. But at the same time, it's not all of them either. So we need to root them out. And so that's that's my message. And until, and until that happens, it's it's really hard for the public you know, to have faith in the criminal justice system. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Jeff. I look at it like this. If the other the other cops are witnessing right. a criminal act of one of their fellow workers, you know, killing a person or, or doing something unjustly or illegally, and they don't say something against it, then you're complicit to that. In, these individuals are complicit to that act. And, and, and they should be held accountable for the entirety of the situation. And just like if a bunch of civilians, if you and I are together with one or two other people, exactly. and we're all together, one of us commit, one of us commits a crime, and we're going yeah. along with it, or we're part of that group, and we're we're in yeah. some kind of support role, we're all getting charged with that. Everybody. That's conspiracy. Yeah, and and I think that's the way it should be. But that's I think cool. it's the same thing. It's the same thing should be with law enforcement. Yes. No now, how, how how can you just stand around and watch your coworker? You know kill somebody, beat somebody, or engage in other engage in other illegal tactics and you don't say anything. I, let me not get started, man. I, I already said it up, but you, you yeah. get where I'm coming from. It's inhumane. It really is inhumane. And and, and I wanna I wanna also add that, you know, this the prosecutors they, they have this, you know, they have this immunity, uh these immunity immunity clauses. If you could could if you could Jeff ex explain to the audience what qualified immunity is. Yeah, so qualified immunity is what, what police officers have. So you have to be able to show that other people in that profession in a similar fact situation have been held, uh, have been held civilly liable. And if you can't, then your case would be would be dismissed. But mm -hmm. I don't like that. I, I think the only issue should be, you know, were any laws broken or any rules or regulations broken? Was there any rights, constitution, state constitutional rights, constitutional rights? If anything wrong was 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 done, then I think that the law enforcement should be should be held accountable. It doesn't matter whether or not somebody else in a similar situation has been held accountable. So, in other words, if misconduct was allowed to ride before, I guess it'll ride forever. So then, how is that going to stop anything? Man. If someone kills somebody, right, not only can they subject to criminal prosecution, but that that person's family could bring a wrongful death suit. Yeah. That's right. Why shouldn't that why shouldn't that apply to law enforcement? You know, I think any self-respecting police officer or prosecutor, they should want the dirty ones in their profession forced out of it so we can yeah. restore dignity to those professions. But we can't try to restore dignity so long as the status quo is is, is there's no change. No doubt. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's about accountability, man. It's accountability. And the time is now. You know, we, we've been through decades and decades of oppression and injustices and inequalities. It's a, it's, it's a movement that, that is happening today that I feel in my 54 years, getting ready to be 55 years on this earth, that is quite different than any time before. You have the young people that I am so proud of, the young brothers and sisters and kings and queens and all the individuals that are supporting these 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 peaceful protests and speaking out and and, and using their 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 uh, social media their social media voices that they're using their 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 time and efforts to, to just start organizations to start to start speaking against all of these inequalities and I am so proud of these young people and and uh, all of the elderly everybody that is involved in being a part of the the solution today being a part of the change. And that is so powerful. It all counts. And, you know, the wonderful thing that we're doing, wonderful thing we're doing today is, you know, we're talking about peaceful protests, right? We're not talking about looters. We're not talking about people involved in, involved in violence and, you know, 
vandalisms on property. We're talking about protests. And I think that all those other tactics, those are unhelpful. And that, that causes there to be a shift in the conversation from criminal justice reform to instead act action actions of a group. And so I think that, that, that that's not helpful. So we need people to continue to do things in a, in a, in a, in a lawful way. No doubt. No doubt. We just we don't want to get caught up in because there's a lot of diversion tactics out there where where media will hype up. Well, you got looters. You got this and that. These are these are a lot of tactics that are ongoing today to try to divert the attention from what's really happening. And that's what's really happening is police brutality, police killing black men and women, police incarcerating thousands of people illegally and and and, and prosecutors doing illegal work, individuals doing wrong that's what the, that's what it's really about and we talk about institutionalized well myself i talk about different type of institutionalized situations where there's individuals that are, are, are less from the from the from the from the less lesser class of people they're always subject to being scrutinized more and have different oppressions placed upon them and 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 there's a systemic there's a systemic thing going on within our country systemic racism there's a lot of things happening that are go ongoing in this country that are being revealed. The veil is coming off. People are being informed. Technology is allowing everyone to opportunity to be informed. And people are speaking out and they're exercising their rights. And I'm just so proud right now to be in America, to be, to be a, a human being in this world because the change that I'm seeing is phenomenal. And, and, and it's like I said, you have individuals like yourself and I, Jeff, we can come and and we can have a, a an opportunity to speak at, at, at a venue, you know, my podcast, chopping it up with Jimmy C. And we can be able to share with the world how we feel about our views, about what's going on in the world, and just be a, a part of the solution and not the problem. And that's what's key. So, so I want to ask you, uh, Jeff, what what do you think as far as where we're headed right now? What what are some of the solutions? I mean, you have individuals speaking about reappropriating re certain funds and doing things of that sort to get back into helping people within our within our country instead of of being in a position to always harm or or be be, be viewed as militarized or militarizing themselves in our country we're, we're focusing more on imprisoning imprisoning and, and jailing individuals what do you think we should do to to, to I guess uh, uh, curve that and, and and go back to to helping and healing and, and really, you know, rehabbing. If you talk about being rehabilitated in, in institutions, what, what can we do? What, what kind of services can we start putting our monies back into? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I'm in favor of demilitarizing the police. So I don't think, for example, the police department should have a tank, for example. For what? Okay? For, for what? Okay, we're, citizens in this law enforcement, we're not, we're not in a war zone. Uh, yeah. I do think that as a country, you know, our answer to everything is incarceration. And, you know, we, we need people have drug problems. They should be in, in rehabs. People yeah. who are arrested for nonviolent crimes. I think, you know, there's alternatives to incarceration. There should be reentry programs to help people uh, reenter back into society. I think we need to invest money in rehabilitation in the prison it, itself. So I benefited personally from college education while in prison. I was after I got the GED. While I was in prison, I got an associate's and I completed another year of schooling towards the bachelor's before the funding was cut. That meant when I was released, I had that much less time to go in terms of continuing my education. So college education for prisoners is, is, is a proven recidivism rate. There's a 68% recidivism rate throughout the country, uh, whereas people who've been incarcerated have college education. They have much lower percentage. So Hudson Link, a nonprofit, is a 2%. I think we should have vocational trades that have up to, but up to date. So I, I did a lot of trades while I was in, in prison, Jimmy. I completed the plumbing program, for example, and I did six certificates. But awesome. everything there was like on on metal, on like um, iron pipe and metal, and now and everything out here is PVC and copper. So I think the and the professors, the teachers there, didn't seem to be so much interested in teaching as they actually were to just get a paycheck. Right. So I think that up to date technology within the course in terms of course curriculum and oversight are people actually learning those are some things certainly the uh ver verbal abuse and other types of abuse that go on in the prison from the correction officers and the staff 
you know, that's counterproductive when it when it comes to uh, prison as something we, we need to make a real commitment to rehabilitation because the majority of prisoners are going to be released at some point. And so you want somebody who is equipped for gainful employment, who've had their horizons uh, uh, broadened. Is that who you want living next to you? Or do you want somebody, you know, who uh, doesn't have the ability to get a, a, get a job? They're the same way that coming out that they were going in, or arguably uh, worse, because now it's harder for them to get a job. And they've been around, you know, uh, they've been around some people that maybe they're still scheming on crim criminal acts. I mean, I, want, I would want someone living next to me you know that has a chance to make it in, in in society. Oh, no doubt, undoubtedly. So I want I want to ask you. I mean, you know, I mean, dealing dealing from um, a social perspective, and uh, and also dealing with with individuals, you know, that may have mental mental impairments that are inside. How, how would you? What would you recommend for individuals uh, going into the system? How how can we how can we help individuals? that have mental impairments because today's day and time, you're dealing with more people that have mental impairments that are being sent to prison. I know when you were in prison, you had to see people at the peel line. When they call for peel line, you see you see maybe four or 500 people running to the peel line just to get pills all day. And this is three times a day. So what can we do to, to try to, to bring some type of change to, to start saying, hey, we need to deal with these individuals from a mental standpoint instead of just saying, send them off into prison. You know, let's treat let's treat the individuals instead of throw throw the key away. Yeah, exactly right. I so I did see a lot of people, you know, that that the Department of Correct they were just in, interested in population management rather than actually treating people. Uh, you know, and so I think that people that have mental health issues should not be incarcerated. I think that they should be released immediately. They should be paroled immediately and go to. Um, facilities that can deal with their mental health illness and once it's certified by experts that, you know, they're, they're able to safely be released and not a threat to themselves or the community they've been treated, then then they should be released. I mean, you know, medical care in prison is terrible. It's not equipped for that. It's certainly not equipped for uh, mental health. And to just uh, give another answer to the last question you asked, I mean, I also believe, um, you know, in restore, restorative justice, yes. you know, and so, and so those, that kind of program in, in the prison, uh, one of them, there was a program in which uh, in which crime murder victim family members were allowed to come come into the prison and they were able okay. to meet with prisoners who were there for uh, committing murder. And, okay. you know, it was it was they, you know, they, there was identification made and, and, and healing. And, and uh, there was a there was, you know, there was accountability that way. And I think that, you know, the crime victims were better afterwards and the prisoners were were better as well. So restorative justice is on uh on both both ends of that, so I mean, I think that awesome. that's a really innovative uh, program as, as well. Awesome, I mean, it's a lot of programs in the institution that that help individuals. I remember going off into RSAT, Residential yeah. Substance Abuse and Treatment Program, and 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 my drug of choice was was marijuana, but I hadn't smoked weed since like 1989. I went into this RSAT unit for the purpose of getting a, a single cell and while in there you know i got all the help man i tell you it's like if you get thrown in the water you're going to get wet and when i went off into this environment i got the most help man it, it really changed my thought process it helped change my life and i and i still i still just i'm appreciative of, of the values the the core concepts and things that i've learned i learned from that rsat experience and uh that rsat experience it's probably going on in, in majority of institutions throughout the country. Yeah, I remember when they instituted that in uh, in the New York prison system. They designated you know a whole cell block specific yes. for people, and then that was their way of fulfilling the R in the in, in the R set. You know, the residential. residential uh, right, right. Well, man, I tell you, I, I, I'm like you. Uh, you know, I, I I tried to stay busy my entire time of incarceration, and and I tell you, I just didn't allow. I didn't allow any negatives around me to push me in a, in a negative direction. And I kept, I kept myself in a positive direction. I, I continued to, to educate myself. We had college classes. I took college classes yeah. every year and that I could, you know, I earned some degrees while inside. I'm able to continue while I'm out here now with, with degree processes of uh, maybe going on off into uh, to law school like yourself. 
I, I would love, I, I'm encouraging you to do that. Yeah, I would yeah. love to do that. That would be great. Yeah, I'm going to be taking classes. I'll be online taking classes uh, here, in, I guess, in a few months. I'll be beginning a whole new chapter, you know, online, God willing, with uh, Chapman University. And that's going to be an awesome, awesome uh, experience. But I tell you, inside, man, I learned everything. I, I I worked in the in the laundry. I learned how to fold clothes. I learned how to how to press. I worked in the kitchen. I worked in prison industries. I worked in the gym. I worked on the, in the housing unit. I did the floors. I buffed. I, if I wasn't buffing, I was doing windows. I learned how to do plumbing. I learned. How, I went to culinary arts. I learned restaurant. I got a restaurant management degree. I learned how to cook. I learned how to understand the front of the house, the back of the house. I just Everything that was offered, teacher's aid, yeah. legal aid, just legal rep, whatever. Every every job I basically had while inside my 27 years. And I noticed you said you did something similar. I and did the same thing. Yeah, I took programs that had some kind of potential application right. to me once, you know, once I regained my freedom. So I didn't right. I didn't I didn't you know, I didn't waste any time. No. I made use of I made use of my time out of the cell, and I also made use of my time in the cell. I used to go to the law library. Uh, yes. I used to read like three or four uh, nonfiction books a week. So yeah. I, uh, you know, I, I made use of my time just just like you. And that, and you, since you're talking about reading, that that gives me an opportunity to segue into some questions that uh that I have uh for you, Jeff, about like what was the what was one of your favorite books while inside that you that you enjoyed reading. Was a uh, mankind search for meaning by uh, Victor Frankel. That's one of mine. Man's search for meaning, Doctor Victor Frankel. Yes, he talks about logotherapy. Thought, oh, exist existentialism. I mean, powerful book, powerful yeah. book, man. So I want to ask, what 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 is one of the first foods you ate upon leaving prison? Can you can you recall? Can you go back and, re and recall? I absolutely can. Sure, of course. I had. Right. Uh, I had um, mussels with uh, marinara sauce, and, and had that in 16 years. Okay. And I had, and I had a side order of uh, baked ziti. Wow. And, and uh, I had uh, like a Neapolitan ice cream, which um, you know the restaurant didn't have that, but they had like vanilla chocolate or they had strawberries. So I told them just put it all together in one uh, one yeah. dish. So there's actually a uh, there was a there was a picture of a, uh, of, a of a newspaper that took a picture of me uh, while I had the, the, the spoon come into yeah. my mouth, you know, while I was in the night. So for that brief half a second, I kind of sort of felt like what, what it might be to be a celebrity and have the paparazzi uh, take more. Wow. Wow. Inside, you, did you all have ice cream, things of that sort inside? Yeah, so the the state they would give you like a Dixie cup like one, once, every, once a week, once every two weeks. Okay. But then we went to commissary, you could purchase ice cream there. Yeah. So you know, I, every time I went to commissary, I I purchased uh, I purchased an ice cream. Yeah, that was like a little minor creature comfort amongst the uh, the, the the general suffering and hell that is prison. So yeah, I had I did that. No doubt. So so my next question is, um, what's the most shocking experience that you've had since you came home to the to the White House? Well, I mean specifically um, the uh, Eisenhower uh, Executive Office Building. Which is attached to to the White House, and you know, I was on the uh, not as a tourist, but to meet substantively with you know one of uh, President Obama's advisors, and they had like, a whole team around them, and yeah. you know, I, I was allowed to do a lot of talking, and they took a lot of notes, and um, and I was allowed to walk around a little bit on, in, the, in the Rose Garden, and, and I took I took a few photos while I was there. So, uh, awesome. yeah, that, that was an amazing experience. I never would have thought that uh, I would get to go there or. Uh, I met with the Department of Justice. I mean, you you belong. You belong to that, man. I mean, and, and I tell you, sometimes we we get into situations, and we're we get into different uh, areas or arenas, and we're and we're overwhelmed, and and we think, man, I man, I'm, look where I'm at. But I tell you, you laid the groundwork to be receiving everything you're receiving, and to go and experience everything you're experiencing. So so it's. It's their opportunity. They should be in awe to meet you, and and, and to be to have the opportunity to have you there with them. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. That's how I look at it. I agree with you. You're right. Yeah. So, so I want to ask you this: What do you love doing the most? What 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 makes Jeff happy right now? What what do you love doing the most? Trying new things. 
So okay. from new experience to new activities to going to new places or trying new food. Okay. That makes me very that makes me very happy. A close second, or maybe even part of that, is, is travel that is going to new places. Thirdly, I'm I'm a chess aficionado. Ooh, so yeah. I love playing chess. I love Ooh. playing chess. So when I get wrapped up in a good game of chess with you know someone who's who's uh, you know is, is a good player, I I enjoy that too. Well, you know, I you know I'm a chess guy myself. Joe. I didn't know that. We're gonna we're gonna have to play offline. We're gonna play. I, I was just talking to a friend of mine yesterday, and I, I have a place since I've been home. But um, man, I had my own chess boards, and I and I had a beautiful chess board made wooden, beautiful. Wow. I left it. I left it inside to one of my friends. But man, I love chess. I love the option. I remember playing chess for for like two or three hours one yes. game. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, chess is a very, very exciting and thoughtful game. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Man. Well, they have chess tournaments, man. So, you know, when, when everything is safe to travel, and again, I'll, I'll look up a couple of chess tournaments in uh, in Atlanta, and uh, you know, I'll I'll come, I'll fly down there. We'll both enter. We'll both enter a tournament. <laughs> we'll, we'll hook up. We'll we'll hang out together, and we'll. And we'll also uh, we'll play in the tournament. We'll see how we can do against the players out here. Man, we're going to see how we're going to do. I'm going to have to start back practice. I'll, I'll start back playing again and get my game right. You never lose it. it no. It, it's still there. No, it's always still there. riding the back of swimming. But you do have to play semi-regularly just, just, to, just to be as sharp as you can be. Yeah, practice is perfect. Yes. So, so, so I, know you, I know you stated that, that you, you like to travel. Have you, been, uh, have you traveled outside the country? I have. Yes. Wow. Uh, yes, I have. Um, I've uh, I've been to uh, three different places in Colombia. Uh, yeah. I was at uh, the, country, the country of Armenia, Medellin, oh, and Pasto countries within Colombia. Oh. Uh, I've been to the Dominican Republic. Me. Oh, uh, I've been. I was at I was at Argentina. So I uh, there, so there's uh, one of my uh, colleagues, one of my friends, Fabian Camano. He has the uh, he has the only three books on wrongful conviction in Spanish. Yes, and he set up a seven uh, a seven day uh, tour for me, where I went. I spoke at a number of places and did a bunch oh, of media interviews um, with him. He translated for me, Jimmy. The highlight of it was oh. um, I spoke at a police academy. Well, those was within a prison, but they had the correction officers and they yeah. had regular police officers. It was uh, several hundred people in attendance. Okay. There were other representatives of the government wow. there, so. Uh, that was really nice. But, you know, doing that and meeting with other governmental officials, I met the um, Secretary of Human Rights and, you know, she she gave me an audience and she appeared in a lot of those. And again, she yeah. heard me out. And so that that was really good. But then I was also at, so I also traveled uh, to the co- country of uh, Armenia, again, working with advocates. So Dr. Hampikian from the wow. um, Iowa, uh, Iowa Innocence Oh, Idaho Innocence Project, excuse Idaho. me, Idaho. Oh. Yeah, but uh, we worked with a bunch of advocates there for a week-long series of events, uh, you know, speaking at different places, meeting a meeting with the public, meeting with members of the uh, uh, of the government and doing wow. media interviews. So those were all those were all really nice. Man, you, you've had some wonderful experiences, man, and opportunities. It's, it's, it's just wonderful to listen to you and hear some of the things you've done, man. I mean, life is so, so awesome. Oh, praise yes. God, man. Praise all God. Praise. Praise God. Ooh, man, you know, I, I've had my passport since September of 2016, and mm-hmm. I have not went anywhere. I've not got one, gotten one stamp. I mean, nowhere. And, and my wife and I, we were getting ready to go to Africa this year. Oh, wow. I was getting ready to go to Kenya and, and, and Nigeria, and we'd go mm-hmm. over to South America. Didn't happen. COVID-19 stopped it. So I yes. said to people, I said, it just wasn't meant. So right. I don't see myself getting a stamp anytime soon either. Not safe yet. Yeah, no. no. But I mean, I, but look, I'm dedicated to the cause, and you know, I, I need to live as long as I possibly can to continue yeah. to make a difference and do my work. A lot of people, you know, a lot of people depend on me. But then also, you know, like who, who wants to survive many, many years of wrongful imprisonment only to pass away after a short time on the outside? Yeah. Yeah, you know that that's a sad situation. I've I've known some people that have done that. Oh, Actually, my yeah. first the first client that my foundation exonerated, uh, William Lopez, who did yeah. uh, twenty three and a half years in prison. He passed away after a year and a half of uh, mm. of, uh, of of being home. So his whole adulthood was in effect robbed from him. So yeah. I've I've unfortunately seen uh, Sharif Wilson, another person from uh, from New York, who passed. That he, he he got like ten months. He lived for ten months. 
Yeah, so I've seen it happen before, unfortunately. I've witnessed it also. My friend Bobby Jean, Bobby Jean mm -hmm. passed away. You know, she mm -hmm. was out of Louisiana, but she was with the Georgia Innocence Project. Mm -hmm. She's in Atlanta. Yeah, Bobby Jean passed away last year. It's been some some very uh, unfortunate times for individuals. You know, I've known a few individuals come home and uh, not have that long of a time outside, but um, man, we just got to try to continue to do the work that we do to bring the individuals, the men and women home under these false pretenses, get them out of those situations and bring them home. Yes. And with saying that, I want to go to my next question. But are you active in advocating for justice for others that are still incarcerated? And if so, can you tell us how? Absolutely. So right now, through, through my nonprofit, the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, so we currently have 11 active cases. I'm expecting within this upcoming year anywhere from two to eight cases may, may be successful. So I'm, I'm active that way in terms of individual. But then, you know, aside from that, I really don't count, you know, cases where other entities are doing the investigative or legal work. But, you yeah. know, they asked me to contribute in one way or another on the uh, public relational side of things, you know, helping to get additional media attention, yeah. grassroots tactics where we, ha we do things like pack the courtroom, we advertise on social media. So I don't even really count that. But then also I do do a lot of informal consulting. So a lot of people who have friends and family, relatives, that they allege that they're wrongfully imprisoned, a lot of them reach out and they get in touch with me. You know, and obviously we, we can only do the cases we can, but I don't like to turn people away empty handed. Yeah. So uh, I do consult with them a little bit and, you know, I give them, them some tips, you know, this is what the letter looking for help should look like, or I help to steer them a little bit because a lot of times the friends and family, they're really in over their head, you know, yeah. they don't understand a lot of things. So I try to orient them and give them a few tips and That's show cool. them how they can, how they can do the work and, you know, try to help their, their loved ones. So uh, I, I, that's another work that I do also, which I consider to be on behalf of individuals. Man, thank you. Thank you for, for what you do and uh, for your continued help in the communities, man, and just reaching back to not only people on the inside, but people on the outside also. And, I, you know, I'm a firm believer in the more you give, the more you receive. And it's, it's about continuing to give back. And, 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 I, and I use I use uh, certain quotes in order to keep it. You got to give it away. You know, you you got knowledge, man. Pass that knowledge on. You know, get, give it give it to those men that are coming behind us. That are, that, are, that are in positions to, to do some good things. So we have to keep passing it on. So I want to ask you about this. This is my next question. Um, I want to like to add one thing to my last okay, sure. answer too. So, But another thing also, so as an individual, not, not as through, through my nonprofit, but as an individual, you know, I, I've, also, um, I've also supported candidates who are running for political office on a wrongful conviction and criminal justice reform Late. So in this last, uh, so actually this year, uh, this year alone, so, you know, I supported Mimi Roca, who was running for Westchester yeah. DA and, you know, waiting for the official results, but she appears to have won. Uh, oh, Matt okay. Toporowski in Albany that were waiting for the all the rest of the votes to uh, be, be counted. He's like 1,100 votes behind with 17,000 to count. So those two, uh, Yvonne Rosales, who's running for uh, district attorney in uh, El Paso, they're they're um, doing their absentee balloting now. They're going to have their in-person in, uh, in person uh, voting in in July, so those candidates. But in the, but I, but in the past, I mean, I supported other people, uh, some of whom have gotten have gotten elected. And when those people, like I supported Ken Thompson when Ken Thompson was running for a Brooklyn DA, and he got elected. And in the two and a half years in office that he had before he passed away, he was able. Uh, his conviction review unit freed twenty three people wow. in in twenty three months. I mean, excuse me, two and a half years. You would never, ever be able to get wow. that kind of a result from the nonprofit sphere or just even as an individual attorney. So I think having the right people in office is 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 key. And so those things that I do, like I feel like every one of those people that, you know, got in the office that, you know, some small percentage to that, you know, I can I can feel a little bit of satisfaction that I made my little minor contribution in that in that oh. way by, by supporting Ken. So getting involved in those races, I think, is another way of, of, of helping people. Man, thank you for sharing that, Jeffrey, man. That's that's powerful. Woo! Man, that had me cringing. Woo! 23. Wow. Man, so beautiful. So so I want to, that, that, that leads me into the young people. You know, I, I, I stated before, I'm, I'm so proud of our young 
young uh, young adults, man, that are coming up today and these individuals that are, are letting their voices be heard, these individuals that are protesting against injustice, inequality, and all types of disparities, these individuals that are against all oppressions. What, if you could, what would you say to our young people today? What, what, what words of encouragement and that, that would you give them to continue the fight and to continue doing what they do and just being a, positive, a, a part of the, the solution and not the problem? I would say a few things. So firstly, I would say persistence overcomes resistance. Continue to protest. Uh, could, you know, get involved in additional in additional ways. Also, I mean, it's very important to register to vote, to yeah. get be registered yourself, to register other people, encourage people to vote. As we just mentioned, who's in office definitely matters. Learning more about uh, wrongful conviction, other criminal justice reform topics, other topics that uh, you know are, are topical that make a difference. So, learning more about them, sharing that information, that's part of the work. I think that going to college and you know getting bachelor's degrees, get master's degrees or get a law degree, get a PhD and then use that additional education to be an even more effective advocate. I think that's part of it. I think volunteering at nonprofit organizations, I think thinking about a, a career in it at, at whatever level you're able to afford even just a modest donation. I mean that that's all that's not free to do the work. Um, yeah. So I think that that's all that's all part of it as well. Uh, you know signing petitions, organizing events, speaking at events, showing up at events, all those things count. That's all part of the struggle. So I would encourage people to be be involved uh, th those ways, social media as well. Uh, they can think about doing what you're doing. I mean, look, a, a, a podcast is, is yeah. great. You reach people, write a blog. There's uh, people who do documentaries. That's all That's all yeah. part of the work. There's a ton of careers even with uh, within nonprofits, and whether it's uh, doing policy work, fundraising, social media within a nonprofit, grant writing. That, that Those are all things beyond obvious ones of doing investigative work or doing legal work. There's, uh, there's, there's certainly room for people to be involved on a social work or a psychological level in terms of helping people to reintegrate back into society. That that's part of the work. There's investigative journalism. There's regular journalism where yeah. once in a while you write, write something. So there's all these different ways of, of being involved. Just whatever someone is most passionate about, whatever they have a talent for, that that should be what they, uh, what, what they focus. But, you know, do it. Do the work and whatever. If you need any additional education, then, then to, to help you be even more effective, then, then do that. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for sharing that, man. And and I tell you, man, we, man, man, we we just been chopping it up here, with, man, chopping it up with Jimmy C, man. We've we've had such a wonderful time so far. The topics and the questions and the answers, man, we can go on and on, man. In preparation of of uh, allowing this this wonderful opportunity to to end, I want to ask you one last question, and that would be, what would you want? your legacy to be? I would like my legacy to be that, that my name was never forgotten. Like what happened to me and more importantly, the work that I did after the fact, you know, right. to be able to point at specific laws that were changed, that were policies that were changed that are, that are concrete improvements that are long lasting that, you know, and for my role in that, along with many other advocates and organizations, that would be my legacy. Awesome. I would love that to be awesome. And man, I tell you, it, it, it just, it's been, it's just been a phenomenal opportunity to, to just sit down with you, man, and chop it up, Jeff. It's just been so phenomenal. And, and I, and, and like I said, we can go on and on, man. But with that, I want to be able to, to let individuals know that this has been an edition of chopping it up with Jimmy C life after wrongful conviction. And, uh, I've been here with my dude, my friend, Mr. Jeffrey Deskovic. And, and Jeff, if you can share how individuals can, can contact you or if you want to give me your social media, your social media mm -hmm. sites or information where individuals that want to get in touch with you, how, how can they get in touch with Jeff? How can they be able to, to just hear more of you or see more of you? Yeah, so a number of ways through social media, uh, Jeffrey Deskovic. I have a public figure page. So people can like the page. Whatever I put on my personal profile, I share it over to the public figure page because I'm, I'm pretty close to my limit on the uh, the personal page. But 
following. If you like the public figure page, I will put, you'll be able to keep up with me that way. You can message me that way. Go to my website, www.deskovic.org. That's another way that uh, people can email me through the website. You can go to YouTube. The channel is called Deskovic Foundation. So I have a lot of my media interviews and presentations and, and, and events and uh, some of the awards I've received. So if you want to hear more of me on a wide variety of topics, including times that were recorded when I spoke in front of state legislatures on different criminal justice issues, close to like 200 videos there. So people can awesome. uh, can check those out and uh, people can share those as well. I mean, that's very, very helpful when people share the videos and help get the word out there. Just again, I'm just a tool in a struggle. You know, but uh, more people hear of what I'm doing, I think it, it, the better it is for the cause. It's like yeah. the more people doing this work, which is why I'm really excited to be, you know, part of chopping it up with Jimmy C. You know, this is part of that work as well. The more they hear from us and people yeah. like us, the better it is for the better it is for the cause. Man, thank you, Jeff. Man, thank you for sharing. Thank you for taking time out, man, and just sit down and chop it up with me. And 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 I just. Man, I'm so proud of you, bro. So proud of you and happy for you for all the success and all of the wonderful opportunities and experiences that you've been able to incur since since your wrongful incarceration and being able to withstand that wrongful incarceration to be able to be the man that you are today and being yeah. to continue to give back and more. Yeah. And thank you so much. And with that, this has been another edition of Chopping It Up with Jimmy C., we want to say again, thank you to my guest, Mr. Jeffrey Desovic, and you guys out there, take care of yourself. Allow yourselves to continue to grow. Don't, don't get um, placed in a position where you're stagnated. Don't become complacent in where you, where you are in your lives. Continue to grow and continue to go. And with that said, I am Jimmy C. Gardner of Chopping It Up with Jimmy C., Life After Wrongful Conviction, and I thank you for joining in. You guys have a great day. Peace. One love. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Chopping It Up with Jimmy C, where we celebrate life after wrongful conviction. Remember, you get to define your life, no one else. Also, don't forget to like and share our Facebook page. Sign up for our alerts so you don't miss our show. That's it. We out. Peace. One love.